Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good morning, three amigos. Welcome back. Good morning. Hello, hello. Here on another SideQuest. So, I was doing some thinking this week. (laughs) Okay. Oh, no. Well, that's not a warm welcome. (laughs) No, please, tell us about it. You sound so enthused to hear Slava. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. No, I, I am. I am. So I was doing some thinking. We're wrapping up the Lies of Lamora today. And so the question that I thought of, because I don't want to go and listen to more Slavic dating culture, um, in case anybody anybody had a good time with that. Yeah. Made it that far. And if you don't know what we're talking about, at the end of Black Flame Part 3, Spencer and I had to go through a 30-minute ordeal listening to Slava. He chopped it down to like eight minutes for you. But let me tell you, you didn't miss anything from the stuff he chopped out. The eight minutes he left (laughs) is worthwhile. That's why we kept it. But anyway, I was thinking, because you know I like my questions, and we're finishing up the Lies of Locke Lamora. If you could choose a brand new name and persona for yourself, what would it be? Because Locke does that with Lucas Fairwhite and all the other grifts that he runs. Yeah, Stumper, huh? That is a Stumper. Interesting. I think if I was to choose something from when I was a kid, right, then this would be easier answered if I think back on when I was a kid and played make-believe. I always wanted to be some sort of a super spy or something. But if we're going to align this question with... Lies of Locke Lamora. I would say that some sort of duke, but I'm also a thief. Those things always fascinated me when I was a kid. Those sort of stories, I mean. We're just a rich guy who's so bored that he goes and robs people. Wow. It's like reverse Robin Hood. You don't steal from the rich to give to the poor. You steal from the rich to keep it for yourself. Robin Hood did not steal from the rich. He stole from the government, which is a different type of thing. I mean, you're right. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. How about you, Spence? You get to reinvent your life. New persona. New name. Oh, Slava, what would your new name be? Well, let me think about that. Eggplant McGee? All right, Spencer. <laughs> yeah, the name part for me, I don't I don't know. But I think I would want to be some sort of uh, adventure, like Indiana Jones kind of thing. That was always kind of, Slava, like what you said, going back to childhood. Like I liked picturing myself going on adventure, like treasure hunting expeditions or something like that. You know, finding the lost city of Atlantis or, you know, something something crazy like that. Treasure hunter? Not just a treasure hunter, but also, like, just going on adventures, exploring. Unfortunately, there's no new lands to explore on planet Earth. Like in the olden days when people got to go exploring and find new lands. Um, but that would be super, super fun. I would be some sort of adventurer like that. Nice. Remind me to send you a video that I sent Slava earlier this week about anacondas. Oh, yeah. Did you watch that little clip? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. There's a second part to that video. Oh, I didn't watch the second part. Same channel. Just go to their shorts and watch the second part. It gets even more interesting. So the gist of it is they're in Central America. Is that right? South. 
South America. Probably more mm-hmm. south. And they go capture an anaconda in the in the forest or whatever. They bring it back, and the chief of the tribe is like, "That's the smallest anaconda I've ever seen." And the guy was like, "What? This is like pretty big." And then he's like, "No, no, no. Go to the floating lake." And they go to this floating lake, which is it's called a floating lake because it's a swamp and grass floats on the top. And he's like, "Oh, looks like there's a path in here." And then the buddy that he's with is like, "No, that's not a path. The whole forest can see you." And he's like, "What are you talking about?" And then like one of them moves or something, and it's not a path. It's a big flipping anaconda, like massive. Um, yeah. So there are places to explore, Spencer. <laughs> yeah. So you you still committed to that? Maybe I'm also in the same vein as Indiana Jones, where he hates snakes. So uh, <laughs> we're gonna go to other places. See, for me, it's spiders. I cannot. <laughs> I will burn a house down if I find like a spider. Spiders. Nest oh, in my house. I keep that's, letting that's the it. spiders know. So because I have a basement apartment, like, and this is an old house. It's like from nineteen, early nineteen hundreds, whatever it is. There was like an influx of spiders this summer. And it wasn't, like, an infestation necessarily, but, like, they kept coming out to roost. And so I sealed a bunch of cracks and things, which dramatically reduced the issue, which was nice. And then um, I also make sure to to clean my apartment once a week because spiders are smart. They know that if, you, if, like, an area is clean, I don't think they have noses necessarily, but, like, something lets them know, oh, I shouldn't go over there. So it could be that or the fact that I keep putting them on pikes. Just little like pins, <laughs> little next to little toothpicks with a little psycho. <laughs> <laughs> Be- beware! I yeah, like it goodness. though. I like it. So if I was gonna reinvent my persona, and we're gonna come back to the names here in a second, because don't think that I've forgotten. I would go and be some sort of mysterious, wealthy playboy who went around collecting castles. So I would like weasel my way into these nobilities trust and then get them inebriated in some fashion and have them sign their their family names over to me so i can start an empire i probably shouldn't be telling the world about this this seems (laughs) like it's gonna bite me maybe if we have no listening to this podcast and all of a sudden a bearded duke comes along and tries to give them wine that might be a problem (laughs) i don't know how those systems things are connected but i figured out my name so i do oh well let me finish all right i'll I'll wrap up and then and then you can do the names so i would do that first and then i would slowly start amassing an army and one of my favorite military forces i want to say it's switzerland or sweden and i get them mixed up because i have no no context of how to tell them apart in my mind you ever have that with knowledge like the two things are just too similar to you that you don't know how to differentiate them um nope just me okay great so anyway (laughs) switzerland has the their royal guard they are masters of the halberd i think it's switzerland yes because the swiss guard that is talked about all the time as being amazing just like you said so it's switzerland so they would be my they would be the start of it i would start my own little cradle army and have a series of martial artists and, and a bunch of strike teams that would learn different martial arts, and we we would create different tactical teams. So I was watching this short video clip the other day of uh, Jocko Willink and uh, some sort of Green Beret, and he's like, who's better, the Green Berets or the Seals? And they went, and the Green Beret guy was like, well, as a Green Beret, I, w- I don't even want to be within 20 miles of water if there's Seals around. <laughs> 
Like, no way. Not having it. And then he's like, but if you are trying to take over a country, drop 12 Green Berets into a country, and in three years, we'll have put a new power in place. We'll have multiple wives in that country. We'll whatever. And he, like, sort of shared the nuances of the different specialty branches. And I was like, it would be fun to organize that and you know slowly creep on and take slices of the world anyway that's what i would do slava you said you have your name yeah so i'm gonna take a name from my people from the 10 hundreds sieslav which is just another name for slava a longer version for slava the werewolf who was um, the grand prince of kiev and whose backstory is very interesting he's also known as as Vsieslav the Sorcerer, he is said to be conceived via magic. And in a 12th century epic poem, The Tale of Igor's Campaign, he was portrayed as a werewolf who swatted himself in a blue mist and galloped like a beast at midnight. So that would be my name. I would take it after him. I'd just be a rich bored duke that would rob other rich bored dukes. Duke Slava the Werewolf. I know there's a lot going on in that one, but... There is a lot going on in that one. What about you, Spencer? I really like the show Doctor Who. Uh, so I would be something... I would have a title like his. Only since I'm an adventurer like Indiana Jones, I would be the professor. Mm. That'd be my title that people would call me. So you really just want to be Indiana Jones? Basically. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. What about you, Jonathan? We did some thinking. I spoke to my people. And... I would call myself Claviano Brutus Avila the Third. You got to feel like there's some history here. Thank you, Chad. GPT. No, 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 no. I was doing some research too. Uh, babynames.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play. <laughs> Uniquebabynames.com. <laughs> From olden days. So I just picked three of them and decided to throw a third on it so that it seemed like there was. Some history there. Now, the thing is, this would take a lot of time to create the backstory because eventually they're going to fact check you. So it's really like, um, do you ever read Steelheart, Spencer? Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, Sanderson's superhero. Yeah, YA superhero series. I actually really enjoyed that one. Yeah, it was good. It was fun. It was a nice take. It's a nice yep. take. So I'd have to do like happens in one of those books is create a lot of propaganda about my history just to validate my existence, you know, in my, my, my alternative furnace, my, in my alternative persona. So I did put in to Chad GPT, give me a name for a Duke who is bored and is a thief. Chad GPT says, Lord Alistar Shadowbane. It's the stupidest. I like my werewolf. Honestly, Eastern European, and werewolf makes more sense because there's a lot of mythos and I've brought this up a couple times that I'd love to, for us to go through some mythoses and folklore and you know maybe the difference between them but that was fun alright salty adventurers make sure you never miss a podcast by smashing that subscribe button or you'll lose out on all the treasures that lie ahead today on side quest welcome back Spencer to our little thing Thank you. It's it's nice to be back. Spence, his name is great. Spencer Tim, as I call you. I don't know if you've ever called me that, actually. I did on the last time you were a guest. Oh, well, 
But I'm glad that you listened to me. Thanks. <laughs> Anytime. Glad I can be a really good friend like that. <laughs> You're as good a friend as Slava is. No, come back there. All right. No, we're friends. Spencer and I are friends. Oh, Spence, <laughs> speaking of our friendship and our constant ganging up on Jonathan, we had my friend Jess on. And uh, for those who have heard of that episode, you can stay tuned to the end of this one. There'll be some more bonus content when Jess and I discussed the lies of Locke Lamora. She read it. She really liked it, but we couldn't get her on because of scheduling conflicts. But I will be talking with her later and adding that portion of, of our conversation to the end of this episode. Anyway, Jess came on. Not two minutes into it, her and Jonathan ganged up on me. She threw me underneath the bus, dimed me out for reading some girly book that I <laughs> told her I read when I was like, I don't know, 13. That's the, how did you meet Slava? Oh, he was this weird guy I worked in the restaurant with him. He read a girly book. I was like, oh, well, all right. That's Oof. a, that's an introduction. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> Classic Slava. Yep. Yep. So this is just, I guess, a cycle for SideQuest. I like it. We are on episode five, part five of Lies of Locke Lamora. And as always, we have Spencer on or a guest on. This time it's Spencer. And we're going to go through some some stuff that we liked that we hated. I don't think we hated anything about Lies of Locke Lamora. But once you uh, start us off, Spencer, what are some things that really uh, stood out to you in this book? I was kind of aware of this before before reading the book. But going in, sometimes it was hard for me to keep track of uh, the switching between the timelines. So at some points you get snapshots of Locke's childhood when he gets rescued by Father Chains. That timeline wasn't hard to figure out because you could obviously tell it Locke was a child. But uh, in some of the other points of the story where all of a sudden an action scene takes place and then later on you hear about... Or you see the like the meeting or whatever that takes place before, or the planning that takes place before the actual action scene happens. So sometimes that was hard for me to to keep track of. Didn't make sense at certain points, but overall it definitely made things interesting, and it you know just kind of kept you on the edge of your seat, so to speak, as to like what's going on. Similar things, uh, Locke always seemed to kind of have a trick up his sleeve. Uh, even when it seemed like he was completely out of options, he always had some sort of like backup plan. And sometimes those backup plans didn't work out, but he had like another backup plan, which that was maybe more near the, more near the end of the book. But that was, again, just something that you're like, all right, what's he going to do to get out of it this time? Sometimes he doesn't get out of it. That kind of endeared me to Locke. He's always quick on his feet to think of something. And whether you want to call him brave or confident or insane, <laughs> yeah. maybe a combination of all three, like he's always, he always like, all right, let's get shit done. Shit didn't work out. All right, let's try it another way. That propelled the story well. That made him the character. Yep. And that's just what it is. Now, what'd you think about uh, the killing off of some of the main characters? How'd you take that, Spencer? Yeah, I was really, I was actually quite upset about that when... And Carlo and Galdo, I think that's how you say their names. Yeah. Yeah, I was really, really mad about that. It just seemed like they had more, their story was cut short. It seemed like they had more to offer the story. Um, obviously, for there are plot reasons why Scott Lynch did that, but um, I was really mad about that. I felt like we didn't get to know enough about them and or see more of their story develop. 
but I understand like why why he did that is to is to like how Locke progresses in his understanding of family and friendship later on. But I guess I would just would have yep. liked to see them be able to stick around because now it feels like too that Locke has to to rebuild the Gentleman Bastards organization or whatever they call it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, for sure. I saw it coming, so I was less disappointed. And I mentioned the episode that Jonathan and I did on this, where I also felt it was just necessary for the story. I neither hated or loved it. I was like, yeah, I saw it coming because I even asked Jonathan a chapter or two in. Locke's going to kill more of his friends, isn't he? He's going to be responsible for his death. Of course, you would ask for spoilers. And so I... uh, Right. When he escaped from his coffin of urine and they get to the place and it's just them, meaning Bug and John, I'm thinking something bad's going to happen. I just had like a feeling, a premonition, a, a reader's premonition. And lo and behold... Galdo and um, Kahlo. Yes, the twins are dead, and I honestly didn't see Bug dying. I thought they he would be injured or something, and nope, not so much. Full on dead, and I was a little disappointed with Bug dying. But I guess the twins I saw. Slava the Oracle over here. Yes, CS Love the Werewolf Oracle. I always know when the new moon's coming because I get a rash on my left thigh. But. <laughs> <laughs> Right thigh, right, right thigh. <laughs> Never mind. Um, I see in your notes here, uh, Spence. Uh, I want to hit on this too because I found it <laughs> so satisfying. The Revenge of the Falconer, yeah. dude. I I almost wanted to listen to it again, like rewind and listen. Yeah. So one of the reasons I found that satisfying, well, obviously, revenge from a human standpoint, right? We always find it satisfying, I think. But a lot of times in fantasy novels. Or other just fiction novels. The the main character, or or a lot of times you'll see it in superhero movies, where the main character or the good guy has an opportunity to enact revenge on the bad guy, and they don't because oh we're taking the high road. If I do this, I'll just be just like the bad guy. There is a point to that, but at the same time, like I think most people aren't going to take the high road. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Spencer, how do you really feel about humanity? Let's talk into let's talk about that. <laughs> let's let's table <laughs> let's table that mm. for another day. Um no, but so so to me it was just kind of I guess a little bit satisfying to see that actually in a story like the character not maybe not taking the high road. Um and it, and it's also I think shows like the humanity of the character a little bit more of Locke and Know it like knowing everything that has happened to him, and he wasn't just gonna give this guy a pass. And so, so that that was the reason to me. I think it was really satisfying, not just for the fact of the revenge itself, but also like Locke just being human and just doing what a human would probably do in that situation. I, I want to talk some more about this because I feel the same way. And when I find those characters that take the so called high road. I feel the authors or writers, whether it's a screenplay or a book, are being mm-hmm. preachy. Take the character to their natural place, the natural progression. So if Locke at this point in the book has learned that revenge does not bring any satisfaction, he might do something less dramatic. But that's not where Locke is. 
Locke just witnessed the death of his friends. The the Bond's mage is messing with him and John. He's going to get his fingers cut off and his tongue cut <laughs> off. Also because Locke is a freaking criminal. <laughs> yeah. He's a bandit. I don't like the preachy stuff. What I used as an example in the previous episode is him punching, punching the spider in the face. A lot of people probably wouldn't pull that punch, pun sort of intended, because, oh my gosh, he hits an old woman. Yeah, he hits an old woman. And if an old woman had an antidote for the poisons she just put into the back of my neck, I would curb stop her to get it. Like, like, it's your life, man. Like, And if we're talking about a realistic story, not Slava just saying something crazy about an old woman on a podcast, but an actual discussion in the real world or in a story that's supposed to emulate reality. And I watched a Lynch interview real quickly before we got onto this podcast. I was cleaning up the kitchen and turned on a Lynch interview. And what he said is he wanted to make this believable. Now, he was talking about in-world stuff like money and magic and what part of human history he wanted to place it in. And he chose 15, 1600s. He chose Venice, although at first it was England. And I called that too. So more pats on the back to myself. <laughs> the Slava podcast where he pats himself on the back. And he switched it to Venice because it made more sense as the world was being built out. He wanted Locke to have a realistic world in which he could play the games he played, right? The same applies for what the characters do. So in this made-up world, a guy like Locke punches old ladies and exacts satisfying, (laughs) gleeful revenge. I love it. What do you think about that, Jonathan? Like, how did you feel about the revenge on the Falconer? It was sweet. I'm not a revenge guy, really. But when you lose something so dear to you, like... Locke did I mean one of you mentioned like he has to you know go back oh I think it was Spencer you have to go back and rebuild the gentleman bastards and it's like that took years that's years and decades of life right so when you lose that hell yeah you want to deal with this guy and even even with like the um the warnings because we get the flashbacks the vignette flashbacks of like hey never mess with a bonds mage and Locke's like yeah that doesn't apply anymore. Now we mess with Bond's mages. We won't kill them. Yeah. So this thread, this subplot, comes back in book three. And it's um, riveting, to say the least. Uh, so, sorry, that, that's a lot of facts. I'm, uh, I'm actually a little, little, little personal side quest here. I, uh, I'm trying to get better about talking about my feelings because we're doing, my girlfriend and I are doing like couples counseling right now to just like, not that there's anything wrong, but just to like, hey, how do we how do we create a better foundation? And the uh, the counselor was like, cool. So we're gonna talk about emotions. But I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Like, got this. No, no, no big deal. And he like gives us an exercise. And he's like, and I and I do it. And he's like, okay. So first off, none of what you said was emotions. That's all facts. And I was like, <laughs> oh. And I just turned to him and I was like, this is gonna be really hard. He's like, uh huh. That's why we're doing it. And I was like, oh. Oh, okay. Like, there's just sobriety of, of, like... So, anyway, that little side quest to say, like, I'm realizing that I didn't answer your question. Like, how did I feel about it? It was fun. Like, you you don't get in... Similar to what Slava said, you don't get this normally. And Lynch went... He just fully committed to the story of the world. And I wanted to point this out earlier, but Slava was talking, is... I think I've converted Slava to love world building. So, pat on the back for me, because... Yeah. Well, what I've noticed, and I've always been a voracious reader, 
the last 10 years before this podcast, I read a lot of academic books. Wah, wah. Exactly. So now, after a year and a half of nothing but fantasy and diving back into Stephen King, reading some of my favorites, all the stuff that Jonathan has suggested, which, parenthetical side quest within a side quest, Spencer, you need to give us a book that we haven't read, that we'll do, and that you'll lead a discussion on. Every book that Jonathan has recommended has been, yes, it's been fantasy, but it's all been very different, like Rothfuss, Lynch, Sanderson. And so the more and more you read, and Jess pointed this out in our Survivor episode, the more and more you read, the more and more you pick up on plot, world building, what's good, what's bad. There's some things that are, yes, maybe they're subjective, but a person who's read enough or who reads a lot will be able to pick up on themes and tropes and good writing, bad writing, even where Lynch maybe in book two, I'll think like, hey, Lynch kind of missed the mark on this based on the two and a half books I read about him. This is kind of maybe a little bit off balance Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. So the more and more you read, the more and more you start thinking about these things, Jonathan. So yes, it's thanks to you, but I think it's also me just diving into reading fiction again. And now my brain is being recalibrated from analyzing academic, you know, theses to world and character. Always has to kick a man while he's down. Just has to retake credit from a little peasant boy like me trying to conquer the countryside. Okay, Slava. All right. Hey, I'm a werewolf. Fine. So, yeah, I really enjoyed I'm not a revenge story kind of guy. I actually, like, refused to see Hateful Eight because I don't, I don't think that revenge stories are super redeeming. But this one felt redeeming. <laughs> Yeah, well, it has to do with gratuitous revenge, which I think the Hateful Eight is. And I don't knock Tarantino for doing those kind of stuff, like Inglorious Bastards, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They're not really revenge stuff, but Tarantino does revenge well. It's a trope in the good sense of the it's word. It's his only story that he tells. But here, 100%, Jonathan, here it's satisfying because the Falconer deserves it. Justice is red, right? And he, he gets his he gets his justice here. It's true. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to, to mention here is there is an element of magic in the book. It's not really explored a whole lot. You see it. Some of the characters kind of like have this weird ability. But the author, you know, he doesn't really touch on it. And I found that very interesting because generally in a fantasy world that has magic, it's one of the major mm-hmm. plot points, and mm-hmm. the characters have to either learn how to use it, or if they don't have the magic, they have to learn how to navigate the world. But this one is is more about the thievery and other things, whereas the the magic is just kind of like I don't know, a side piece. I can't think of the right a side piece. <laughs> it's just there, but it's never explored fully. I found that very interesting. But Slava, what did you think about that? I'm glad you asked. Jonathan and I briefly mentioned it, so I'm glad you bring it up so we can talk about it in a little bit more full fashion, because I want to take this conversation a little bit deeper. What I found that Scott did well, what I found that I loved about the magic is it's not over-the-top stereotypical, for lack of a better term, magic where, yep, this is definitely magic, like Gandalf's magic. There is like a scientific element to it. I think Jonathan used that word. And Lynch did this on purpose. From that interview I mentioned earlier that I watched right before we started recording, he said that his journey in crafting the world of uh, 
the lies of Locke Lamora involved a deliberate departure from conventional fantasy tropes, eliminating magical prowess in favor of protagonists grappling with a hostile, mysterious world, right? Say that again. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again slower. I didn't catch it, and I'm sure the audience didn't either. Say that last sentence again. As Lynch was creating the world in which Locke lives, it involved a deliberate departure from conventional Mm -hmm. fantasy tropes, specifically eliminating magical prowess in favor of the protagonists grappling with a hostile, mysterious Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Such a good sentence. Yes. The magic there is given to the Bonds Mages and some of the people in nobility who play with the Black Arch, they're able to do things. And then the alchemists have sort of a magical prowess to them, but they're more chemical and scientific, to use Jonathan's word. Because Lynch saw Locke learning more and being a more robust character, having to grapple with a mysterious world that does have magic in it, has magicians, if you will, he's not going to have it. And he's weak and small, but he's cunning. But John is big and strong and sees Locke as his equal. So together, they're a force to be reckoned with. The narrative setting for Lynch evolved from a high classic European medieval concept to an open world reminiscent to... 15th and 17th centuries. Again, that's why it kind of feels like it's England. But then as he began to write more and more, it just turned into this Venetian kind of story. And he's like, all right, I guess this is going to be reminiscent of Venice instead. But initially, it was going to be England. So the decision to infuse the story with a little bit more, what he called in the interview, rogue aesthetics, such as cloaked figures, navigating rooftops and tavern brawls, It was aimed to maximize what he said was a literary awesome of the city of Camor. And he goes on to say in the same interviews, like, that's the job of an author is to give the awesome factor. And the way he wanted to give the awesome factor here is, well, Locke is small and, and spry, and he's very smart and witty. And he's in this very terrible world, the city of Camor. We can't just give him a magic out. Like, he has to deal with the magic that's in the world. But even the magic is going to be curbed a little bit. So the Bonds Mages have it. The, the Alchemists have it to a degree. Then the people who play with dark magic have it to a different degree. But it's not the world of Middle Earth. So he, right? it sounds like he purposefully so. made a rule for himself. Like, I'm going to have magic. But my strict rule with magic is there's no deus ex machina. Right. Spencer, are you familiar with... I mean, you're, you're probably familiar with deus ex machina in terms of the application or the the seeing it in books but do you know the term i've heard the term i don't really understand it and i've really explored it that's fair so deus ex machina and i'm just using you in 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 standing in for the audience for me real quick deus ex machina means god from the machine it's a cop-out it's it's stories we don't find ourselves enjoying because it's like oh hey a person or thing was introduced and suddenly it's the solution that they needed to solve an apparently what seems to be an insolvable difficulty and it's like oh okay all right, right. so like um a deus ex machina with with the bonds mage could have been something like and then suddenly uh we do a vignette and father chains had gifted Locke when he just before he died a magic dagger you know and it's like it something like that right like that would have been a deus ex machina of sorts yeah. 
So a more official definition. Okay. <laughs> listen, hear me out. A more official definition that says everything that is Jonathan said in one sentence <laughs> is a person or thing. It's not an insult <laughs> to greet people. A person or thing that appears or is introduced into a literary situation and unexpectedly provides an artificial or contrived solution to an apparently insoluble difficulty. Or it could be not that apparently insoluble. It could be just that difficulty. But all of a sudden, this thing comes up like, oh, and I use this dagger, to use Jonathan's example. Bond's mage is dead, and we all go to live in a different town, and everything's fine. Talvarar. Yeah. Lynch does not provide us with any deus ex machina in this book. And that's why it's so enjoyable, because the ante is always up. And yes, Locke is witty, and John and strong, that force to be reckoned with, they get out of a lot of situations, and because they've been together and they have a bond for so long, it's easy for them to read each other and, you know, propel the story as they're fighting off the foes. But there's never a thing that comes along that just gives them an out So of a difficult situation. They always have to work for it. And that's what's so exciting about right. this and enjoyable about the story. When you, when you give yourself a hard and fast rule of no deus ex machina, it means that you, like, putting your characters in bad situations, I feel like, is pretty easy. You're like, cool, how can I make this go wrong to the third degree? And it's just like, oh, that's pretty bad. One of the places that I see this done so well is Breaking Bad. You're like, oh, no, it got worse. And then the next episode, you're like, okay, he's kind of, like, getting out of it. And then it's like he slips, metaphorically slips, and he just gets deeper. And it's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. How is he going to get out? And for like six seasons or five seasons, it just keeps getting worse. And you're like, I literally don't know how he's going to get out of this because you know that the author of the story is not going to just give him an easy out. He's going to like, there are things that happen that are mildly convenient. Sure. But like, they're not crazy deus ex machina. Well, hell, we have mildly convenient stuff happen to us in real life, too. Exactly. So exactly. What we call luck or good fortune, sometimes shit just happens in such a way where you come out okay. I felt that in my life, you know, there's been some things where I kind of gotten out of situations by the skin of my teeth. Is that a, is that a real? Yeah, say, that's a. Is that how they yeah. say it in America? Okay, because sometimes when I say American uh, slang or adages, it sounds like uh, something not, nothing at all what was intended. <laughs> so sometimes I get out of situation by the skin of my teeth. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I was lucky, although I don't believe in luck. But I'm like, oh, wow. So that's happened numerous times in my life, and none of the stuff that I'm referencing is at all analogous to, you know, thievery in Kamor. But you still feel like, oh, wow, well, that's convenient. I'm glad that's over. So that happens in real life. But when you're writing a story and you're you constantly using that as a literary device, it becomes bland right yeah yeah so i want to pivot real quick and 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 move into themes here because i'm curious on spencer's thoughts on some of these things and uh, slava and i've decided to save themes for our guest episodes so just to get everyone's take on it at the same time so the first theme that i want to bring up is just Locke's hubris father chains gives Locke a warning he gives it to him a few times actually first when he gets him you don't understand the trouble you've caused which is when he we learn about the death offerings because he's like you didn't just get this kid beat up you got him killed his roommate killed and a few other kids who were around for it and Locke's just like baffled by that 
But the thing is, his hubris is never addressed because he wasn't really friends with those kids. The one kid was bullying him, so it felt justified. And it was like, okay, he got the kid killed, and then he has to pay off this debt for years. So why do you think... Well, that's not how I want to say it. I, I don't have a question here. I just I want to talk about Locke's hubris. Someone help me. Okay. Well, the reason he has so much confidence is because of his hubris. He goes into every situation, and even if he fails, he goes into it again with another angle, another angle. And that's a great, that's a good characteristic to have. But combined with his hubris is what gets him into trouble. It gets him to trouble the con he's doing in the beginning of the book. It gets him into trouble in his early life, right? Killing uh, his roommates and a bunch of other guys. And it gets him into trouble with the Grey King and eventually the Bonds Mage who ends up killing his family, his friends. Now, the Bonds Mage and the Grey King were going to do that anyway. Does his hubris play a part there? I would say yes, because he still screws the Bond Mage and the Grey King. So his hubris is still there irrespective of what the Grey King had planned before he met him. Hearing you say that makes me come up with a question that I think I was trying to formulate. There's a level of hubris that's needed if you're going to be a master thief. Okay? Sure. There's just, that's a, that's a granted. But it should be tempered, which is what Chains was trying to teach him, and he never got. Right. So how could Locke have tempered his hubris? And feel free to side quest on this. Like, how do we temper our own hubris? Because there are people who are super confident, myself included that just do things. We know there will be consequences. We don't always think about the consequences beforehand. We just do them. Sometimes they work out. To quote Ethan, it really sucks when you're surprised by something because it's always much worse than you realized. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Spencer, what do you think about this tension between hubris and needing it to an extent, but also like how we temper it, lock specifically, and then if you have any sort of side quests? Yeah, I think learning to be humble is how you combat the hubris. It seems like a easy, you know, sort of like, oh yeah, just be humble. But I think stay humble. Um, Sit down, be blessed. <laughs> I think you know maybe maybe when when Locke was or when Father Change was teaching Locke, and, and at the time I think Locke was only just a child, what like five or six, seven or something when he when the the situation where he got his roommates killed. For a child that young, it seems a little bit. Like they might not understand the concept of hubris or humility or that kind of thing. But as he was getting older, I think something that he could have asked himself and something that we should probably do, you know, generally in, in everyday life is just ask ourselves, like, how how are the consequences of my actions going to affect me and those around me? Obviously, not something that always comes to the front of our minds when we're gonna when we're about to do something. But but I think you know it could be you know if we're looking to to combat our own hubris, I think that might be at least a starting point. So I yeah that's that's kind of what I got for that, Jonathan. Slava, what do you think about that? I think it comes with age and growth as a person. It comes with experience and learning from your mistakes, if you're set up to do that. There's some people that, you know, continue to step in the same garden rake for, you know, 110 years. <laughs> if they're lucky enough to live that old, they continue to do the same thing. If I can, And we all do. Can I interject just a quick second yeah. here? So there was a sermon that was preached recently at, at our uh, young adults group that we hang out on on Tuesday nights. And the, the speaker said, 
something along the lines of age doesn't necessarily equate to wisdom. And just because you're older doesn't mean you're going to be wiser. And because, yeah, some people just continue to get stuck in the same loop of mistakes and they never seem to learn. That's exactly it. If you are not performing some sort of self-evaluation constantly, if you're not doing that, you will continue to step on the same proverbial you know, garden rake. When it comes to hubris, I think that's the most difficult one to break. There's a quote that I like, and it's attributed to a few different people, so I'm just going to pull a slava and quote unknown. Some people live 90 years. Some people live one year 90 times. Beautiful. Love it. Yeah, that's good. And Locke, because of the disasters that are caused by his hubris, Locke is forced to reevaluate his priorities. And the weight of his actions nearly crushes him. And you see that in him breaking down at the end of the book. You see him take an account of what his actions have, uh, the consequences of his actions. Yeah, the cost of his actions. Lynch covers the character journey pretty well in these first three books because this is not the end of Locke's misery and this is not the end of Locke having to be confronted with his hubris. I I was trying to find another way to say it, but it's just, that's the way it is. He's been, he's like those people who are like great athletes and they never really have to strive for anything. Like, okay, they have to work a little hard to like shave another minute off their mile, whatever, but it's not real work for them. And so Locke, in the next two books, will encounter moments where he is really cut down to size. Like, he's a big fish in a little pond originally, and then he gets out into the world, and, like, he can plan for contingencies. Doesn't matter. And he gets cut down, and he has to deal with what we all deal with, which is, how do I overcome suffering that I either chose... Um, or didn't choose because someone more powerful than me has come into my life. And it puts some strain on him and it puts some strain on his relationship with Jean. And it's really, really beautiful. It's a great story. So I'm looking forward to doing a couple more of these. I realize that kind of sounded like an ending of an episode. It's not. There's more to. There's more that I want to discuss here, but uh, just like a little teaser of what's going on. So we have a few more themes here. We probably can only cover one more. So Spence, why don't you pick one of these because we have creating personas and the meaning of truth found family intimacy and the strength that vulnerability creates and revenge and we we kind of covered revenge so i'm just gonna, gonna x this one we did out. cover revenge yeah i think if i can combine creating personas and then vulnerability i wonder if because Locke and the gentleman bastards create personas for themselves so much i wonder if sometimes they get lost maybe in those identities and aren't really Mm. they're almost forgetting who they are in a sense because they have to be so committed to these identities that maybe sometimes they can can lose themselves and because they do that so much maybe they do that for themselves uh whereas they don't allow themselves to be vulnerable because they're learning so much to create these false identities that those false identities kind of become a part of who they are. And so it's really hard for for these people, for Locke specifically, since he's the main character, uh, but to 
to to just have that vulnerability because he's so used to creating false false identities and false personas and, and i think we we can do that in our own lives too where we we create this sort of external shell maybe that we present to the world and it's easy sometimes i think if we let it to like have that almost that shell become who we are and then we almost don't even realize that we're doing it Mm -hmm. and that makes it even more challenging to become vulnerable and that's why you know for for Locke, i think you know the more we talk through this i kind of now i feel like i'm understanding a little bit more why the the deaths of the twins and and bug had to happen for Locke in order to like for him to realize like oh i need to i need to take things seriously here Um, yeah absolutely that's that's a that's a really good point and you just made me realize something too it's like synthesizing what you just said and something that slava said too where slava's like oh i saw it coming like the twins had to die and i'm i'm going to spin it a different way is lynch created a character that was so quote unquote well put together and like a master of his craft he needed an equal issue an equal disaster one that was the same height the same depth that Locke carried with him to knock him down to size because if it was something like they stole the money okay fine they'll steal more money whatever if it's you know one of them lost a hand okay that's like it's bad but like they can still get through if it's the death of the you know two of your brothers and one of your new sons your new proteges that's tough that knocks you down to size for sure so that's interesting but to to your point about always playing personas slowly integrating that into your your state of how you live as your personality and then preventing you from vulnerability i'd say that there's some some real implication implications not the word i want no it i feel like it's implied i think that that's a really good observation from the book where okay yeah uh Locke isn't lucas fairwhite but he's sort of Lucas Fairwhite. He takes like a strong theme. And I think, you know what? I'm just realizing it talks about how like Locke can can believe something. And I think Slav and I talked about this previously. We did. Locke can believe something and then like it's true. So like that's a pretty astute observation there, Spencer. The thing you, uh, you're referring to, Jonathan, is Locke had to believe his lies. And I'm paraphrasing. But Lynch wrote, said that's, well, that, yeah. It's in, right in the book that either it's an internal dialogue or Lynch talking from his perspective as an omnipotent, you know, storyteller. It's said about Locke that he had to believe his lies in order to pull the stuff off. So, yes, various to the observation, Spence. All right, gentlemen, what else we got? No thoughts on that, Slava? My thoughts? Uh, yeah, on personas I, and, and vulnerability. No? I, I can give some thoughts. Why not? I think Lynch inserts it into the story really well where it's not preachy it's not beating us over the head but when somebody's true identity is revealed they are vulnerable and power you know or authority or whatever can be wielded over them the bonds mage is a good illustration of this because with people's true names he controls them mm-hmm. john the spider and if somebody reveals their identity by choice it seems like an act of great trust, like Locke does at the end of the book for Jean, because we never even get to know Locke's true name. Oh, did that get at you guys? No, I thought it was kind of cool. 
I honestly forgot about that part until you just said that. But yeah, that's that's interesting how how names have power and I think that's something in more eastern cultures where mm-hmm. names have a lot of power. Well, take Great King, for example. He uses fear and reputation and violence or the reputation of a violent character, right? And he, he acts on that violence and on that reputation to forge an identity, to disguise who he is, because he's playing a different game altogether. I want a side quest. I want to take the the names, the magic that is names. And I've mentioned this in a couple other episodes, but um, let's start with this. So name of the name of the Thanks for joining us in SideQuest. <laughs> so Name of the Wind has some of this magic built into its world. Spencer, you hated Name of the Wind. Did you like the magic system at least? I felt like I didn't understand it. I only I only read okay. through it one time. Okay. And because I didn't really like the book, I didn't really pay attention, I guess, maybe to to some of the, the magic and the themes of the book. Mm. Um, okay. And, and honestly, that was... Oh man, it's been at least five years, I think, maybe since I've read that book. Got it. Maybe four. I don't know, somewhere around there. So, and, and I was in a different spot back then. So, if I read it now, I, my opinion might change. Okay. Yeah, so I don't honestly remember much of the magic from that book. Interestingly enough, Foth and Locke are bosom buddies, to use Slava's phrase. They're both full of hubris. So, that might be an interesting way to come at Name of the Wind again. Slava, what what do you think about the naming magic? Well, I didn't make the connection until you said something in one of our episodes or pre-episode discussions, but I liked Name of the Wind, although I had trouble getting through it because Quoth was annoying the living crap out of me throughout the whole book. He's got like, a oh my gosh. That he just doesn't yeah. outgrow. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just me reacting to a character. I didn't, I didn't right, hate Right, that's not it. the magic system. Yeah. That's not the magic system. And like I just said, I didn't make the connection until you said it, but okay? Question mark? Shrug emoji? Riveting. Just super, super deep thoughts here with Slava. <laughs> it seems like it's similar, but I think not similar enough to... The core is similar, right? So, so well, the core is similar. Like, Quoth goes to find the name of the wind. Like, that's not his original journey, but, like, he's working with Elodin, and... He's like, okay, leave the university and go find the name of the wind. And he has these moments like with, um, what's the jackass's name? Ambrose. Oh, um, Ambrose, yes. You know, mother penny, penny, for his, penny for a ride, da 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 whatever. Uh, and he calls the name of the wind and then he's put up for malfeasance and like he, he called the name of the wind. Like the power of a name is really interesting. I know that Rothfuss took this from Ursula K. Le Guin and her Earthsea series. Because Earthsea has the same magic system. Like, I think she originated it, where there's a character that you follow who's a mage named Ged, G-E-D. Throughout the whole book, though, he goes by Sparrowhawk, because the power of a name is important. And giving your name to someone is an act of trust. It allows them to have control over you, which, as to Spencer's point, like, is more of an Eastern thought. To me, that's just fascinating, because I think it has some truth in the real world, not in the in the sense of magic existing because i would 100 percent just be like doing that with my life you'd uh, be a falconer <laughs> i would 
actually side quest. Oh my, you reminded me. So girlfriend and I were talking about like getting a pet, not right now, but just in general. And she's like, yeah, I want a dog again. Da, da, da. And I was like, okay, cool. So, um, we're not getting a dog, but what about this? Uh, what about a Raven? And she's like, what? I was like, hear me out. You can train Ravens <laughs> to go find jewelry and money for you. If you, if you like, you feed them when they give you stuff because they is want to like investment plan for the future. Okay. Hey, <laughs> it is one of my passive income streams where I get a murder of Ravens to go out into the city that we live in and collect things for me. And they're going to put them in this big box and they're going to be my treasure chest. I'm telling you, this is a real thing that I told my girlfriend. I'm not shitting you. <laughs> I, that's a, I that's amazing. I love it. I got lost here somewhere. Help me. I'm lost as well. I kind of I forgot where we are. I was talking about magic systems and That's right. and robbing people. <laughs> using okay, birds. Okay, it's not robbing people if I don't know where it came from. <laughs> okay, fair. Right? Not like really. <laughs> Like when Liren took the money spheres. Spheres, thank you. When he took the spheres from the uh, town lord, he didn't know Were we getting this again? Yeah. We're bringing this up again? <laughs> Always. Okay. Always. All right. All right. Uh, anyway, th- my point is, Ursula K. Le Guin comes up with this magic system, and then I'm backtracking a moment. When he robbed the poor innocent lord of his <laughs> oh, armor and okay. <laughs> It's not an innocent lord. You <laughs> talked about... Rev- he's okay. not innocent. He's not. The, he's not. The, um, what you call yourself? trying to rile you up. Werewolf oracle. I just want to just see some nerd rage. Yeah. Like like breaking of keyboards and like, you Whoa! know. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We should try and provoke a little more nerd rage between each other. I like that. Yes. But no, there's there's power in names in, in the real world, too, where your mom, you know, let's say she, she calls you Snookums or something like that, Spencer, right? Like Your mom. My mom does not call <laughs> me Snookums. We're coming up with a hypothetical for to prove my point. And that's like an intimate family name or whatever, and it means something to you. And, you know, maybe, you know, you get this girlfriend and she's your fiance. She finds out about that name. And then you either like either give her permission to use that name when you guys are alone and like having intimate conversation and things or you don't. You're like, no, this name is reserved. Right. So like that's an example. Another example is like to get into Christianity. Names mean things. Jesus changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter. He changed Saul's name to Paul. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. Names have meanings for a reason, and they and if I can tie this into the vulnerability and personas that that we were talking about a minute ago, it was it's part of Locke's persona that he doesn't have a name. It's part of Locke's persona that he mm-hmm. hasn't shared his real name because he's he's worn these veneers and things. So name changes in the real world are magic of sorts. It's just not as mystical as I'd want it to be. But I'm still pushing my girlfriend for ravens. I like it. I like it. I just have another thought on on storytelling and, and themes. I think in our Western culture, in our Western world, we like to learn academically, we like to learn in a classroom setting, or at least that's kind of how the culture is set up, where you just take in a bunch of information and you try to learn it, you try to memorize it, maybe apply it. Whereas in Eastern cultures, it's more about storytelling. That's how you learn themes. That's how you understand the world and is you you take in these lessons through storytelling and you see Jesus doing that when he teaches the uh, the parables in the gospels like he's using stories to help people understand the themes like that he's trying to 
trying to teach. And I find that interesting, you know, when we're talking about these themes in this book, where it's like you get to see these themes played out in a story that maybe you wouldn't have. Yeah, you can learn academically about hubris and and pride and, and whatever else these guys are going through. But to be able to see that played out in a story brings it that much more into light. It brings it that much makes it easier to understand and be like, oh, okay, I can see how that works. So, so when I, you know, when I picked up on that theme of vulnerability in the book, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have understand that from an academic perspective. But because I see it played out in the book, like in a story, it, it made it easier for me to understand. Yeah, this is why this is one of the reasons that I I wanted I want to go do a series at some point on here of mythos and folklore and fables, because storytelling is how we used to convey culture to each other. It, it, oral culture is a very big practice throughout the millennia, and we don't do that anymore, which I think has been part of the downfall of society. But uh, yeah, I think that's a, another astute observation, Spencer. Let's start landing this plane. I need new adages. Let's let's start this dropping the eggs in the ocean. Let's start landing this hot air balloon. That's easy. Poke a hole in it. Poke a second hole in it because it's got one yeah. already. Take Jonathan, take inspiration from Yer, and she always has some crazy bleed and bury me. Let's bleed uh, and bury me. Yeah, let's. I, <laughs> I really know love. <laughs> I really love her. Yeah. Her. See, I like to say her, stab her. me in the f- eye, but <laughs> oh, geez, but that escalated. Quickly. Bleed and bury me sounds a lot more with tame. A, <laughs> with a rusty spoon. No, dig my eyes out with a rusty spoon. Uh, yeah. All right, let's roll on to a, a wind down here. I'm going to do rapid fire questions. Was there anything weak in the story or anything that should be improved? Yes. This is what I said earlier. I want more a young lock. Spencer, anything weak or, or could be improved in the story? Not off the top of my head. Totally fine. Favorite piece of world building and why? Mage. The douche mage. Bond's mage. Bond's mage. Like the falconer. The fact that he was always around and it was so well foreshadowed. Oh, there's so much foreshadowing in the front end of the book yeah. that you just don't even notice. Right. It's great. So that that's a good way to build the world i liked um just the fact that the magic wasn't really a theme in the book like it's there but to me that was a unique um a unique plot point maybe uh, or world building thing where yeah it's just like it's there but you don't really know anything about it and we're just going to navigate sort of around it yeah i think that's a lot of it takes a lot of um maturity in your authorship yeah i just really appreciated the uniqueness of that me too same favorite character and why Spencer this time. I think Father Chains. Um, My answer, too. <laughs> he's uh, he's just this wise father figure to these boys. And I don't, I don't yeah, that's my short that's answer. Fine. Yeah. Slava? Locke, because he reminds me of me. <laughs> hey, the same thing. Back to the hubris. Back to the hubris. Same thing for, and I know I've mentioned this a thousand times, same thing for Siri. Like, she just reminds me of me. Like, there's parts of her that I see myself or vice versa. As your feminine wiles, my feminine wiles, indeed, and then my thievery, thieving wiles for luck. I see some of their weaknesses and some of their strengths. I see in myself. So the characters that I'm always endeared to is because of that. It is what it is. Yeah, actually, if I might say, I don't know if they're my favorite, but the twins. Um, <laughs> I think one of the reasons I was so disappointed to see them 
die was just because of their comedic sort of relief in the book. They almost remind me of like uh, the Weasley twins, yeah, uh, from mm-hmm. Harry Potter. Like just like yeah. just this witty sort of comedic humor uh, that they always seem to bring to the whenever yeah. they're around. Unlike Harry Potter, they both die. <laughs> right, facts. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. we do get to see more flashbacks with them in the future, though. So that's kind of nice. Nice. All right, favorite moment in the story: Falconer getting his just desserts. We're not surprised. We're not <laughs> surprised. Yeah, I'm gonna have to agree with with Slava. I know I like you know, sometimes you want different things, but I'm gonna have to agree. That was just a very satisfying yeah. part of the story. For the sake of diversity, I'll take the Great King death too. That was freaking satisfying <laughs> as hell. <laughs> yeah. My favorite moment is when Chains is first introducing Locke, and he's basically giving him this like multi layered lesson where he's like, "There's very few people you can fool in the world, and one of them's your mother." and I can't even, I'm getting it wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. We we quoted it in an earlier episode. Yeah. Like, you can't get past your mother and you can't get past this other thing, and I'm neither, so you can't get past me at all. <laughs> really didn't do it justice. Not at all. It's just the opposite of what he said, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's, uh, but it's not close to what he said, but we all know what you're talking about. It's a good, it's thanks. a really good quote. It is a good quote. Spencer, you want to try and land this plane again? No. SideQuest. You guys take care <laughs> of it. Episode called SideQuest. <laughs> I failed. Thanks for joining miserably. us on uh, uh, SideQuest Spencer. It's called SideQuest. <laughs> oh, that was a really funny moment. Oh, that was great. That down. Uh, I think that I think it was planned. I think you're like <laughs> I know how I'll get them. Oh, yeah, there's very few things right. scripted on our show, and that one was one of them. That was nice. <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> really. um, Jess was supposed to join us this morning, but due to scheduling conflicts, she wasn't able to make it right now. But Slava's going to chat with her again, actually, just after this part of the episode. So tune in to what they're going to chat about. So this is going to be a longer episode. And then next episode, we're actually diving into The Hobbit. I think last time I said that. but We are. And that will have a new guest that Spencer knows. Deborah will be on to talk about The Hobbit with her love of Lord of the Rings and all things Tolkien. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I just finished The Hobbit, and I got to say, I liked it, but I got to say, I remembered about 30% of it. I mean, I read it in seventh grade, so it was a long time ago. Sure, yeah. And I rewatched half the first movie yesterday, too, just because what a... what a <laughs> For research for purposes. For research purposes. <laughs> On his PS4 that he just got. Right. And it seems they've taken some liberties with the... As they always... Don't get me started. No, we're going to say this conversation. I've got a lot of opinions about this. <laughs> I watched the movie long before I reread the book, and I was like, ah, it's kind of the same, but I remember the book being a little bit different. And then I read the book, and I was like, oh, okay, holy crap, I don't remember a lot of this stuff. Let me go back to the movie and see how it fared. And I'm like, what the hell? Yes, we're going to have a lot to rant about. Yeah. Just to say, Slava, I read the book uh, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and I remember about 30%. Okay. your memory (laughs) is definitely better than mine. (laughs) I actually have... uh, I said this, I think, in a different episode. I, I have the um, the cassette version of the audiobook. My grandmother gave it to me. It's in a wooden box. It's, like, super cool. And the, actually um actually pretty cool. Yeah, the narrator, I just remember it when the end of The Hobbit, they're talking with the sparrows outside of Mount Erebor, and he goes, Join us next time. I did not listen to that version. Uh, I read. I listened to the version that Andy Circus did. Oh, that was a good one. Um, that yeah, was a really. Was, good he's one. he's an amazing narrator. Yeah, because I bought the one that was like 
$2 or free or whatever, like 99 cents. And I was like, it's good enough. The guy's like good enough. Like he was fine. And then I saw the Andy Circus one come up and I hit sample. And I was like, well, I'm going to have two copies of this because I can't return the other one. Because Circus is so much better than the one that you're going to be listening to, Jonathan. Yeah. A thousand times better. The songs he does, the voices oh, yeah. he does. Oh. He's an actor. I might have to pick that one Just up. pick it up. Because I originally kept the one that I have thinking that it was the same one that I listened to as a kid because I was like, oh, yeah, this will be great. You know, nostalgia, the whole thing. Yep. But um, yeah. Yeah, I'll look at I mean, that. it's 12 bucks. Like, just just get it. It's worth it. Circus is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, as the final thing here, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss a side quest. And we're challenging Spencer to come up with a book for us to read so that, you know, uh, guest takeover, if you will. We can call it a guest takeover. Because Jess did it, uh, Spencer. So, Jess uh, suggested Survivor. And it can be any book at all, as long as it's fiction. We'll go on a quest with you. Okay. Perfect. I don't want to read Fifty Shades of Grey, Spencer. So, like, you keep that to yourself. Crap. Now I got to find something different. Uh, yeah. all right. 30 Shades of Yellow. Uh, oh, dear. Because horse piss. It might, anyway. <laughs> it might take a little while. Well, I'm in this boot camp, so we'll, might be, uh, next yeah, yeah. Thing, think on it. But that's fine. Because yeah. here's the thing we could read it while you're in boot camp, mm-hmm. record it, have you in the recap episode, or we can read it and wait for you. It doesn't matter. All things are on the table. So yep. all things are possible yeah. on the Slava and Jonathan side quest. I will work on coming up with a book then. Okay. Nice. I feel like I kind of owe it to you anyway. So, <laughs> you know, being 11 books deep on Cradle, book right. one deep on Liza Lamora. I am almost, well, I'm like maybe 30% done with book 12 of Cradle. So exciting. Yeah. Yep. But. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, everybody, today on SideQuest. Be sure to continue to stay tuned in as we transition over to Slava and Jess talking about the lies of Lachlamora. I'm excited to listen to that one. I've got a prior engagement I have to get to, but I look forward to it. Hello, good people. Thanks you for making it this far in the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed what Spencer, Jonathan, and I discussed on Lies of Locke Lamora. As mentioned, Jess is joining us for an after-show bonus type of episode because she wasn't able to make it for the earlier episode, and Spencer wasn't able to make it for the later episode. So here we are. So welcome back, Jess. Thank you for having me. So you read Lies of Locke Lamora. Uh, pretty fast in the last week or so. What are your initial takeaways? Love it, hate it, it's okay. I Good. love it. Like, definitely love it. I uh, feel like I should reread it, though. Yeah. Because I did read it kind of fast, and there's, like, so much in this world. There is. There's absolutely a lot going on. As we ended the first part with Spence, something we discussed is the foreshadowing. I don't know if you noticed this, but the Bonds Mage... They were foreshadowed in the very first pages of the book when Locke and John and his band of gentlemen bastards are doing that con to get Don Salvara to rescue Locke and win over Don Salvara. They notice a bird flying around. 
It's no, a throwaway line. It's a throwaway line. It's like, oh, yeah, I noticed kind of weird bird up there. I think Bug says it. But there's a few other places where a figure is mentioned or a bird is mentioned, and I, it's, it's, the, it's the falconer watching Locke. I feel like I remember the figure being mentioned, but not the bird. There's the figure being mentioned, and the bird is mentioned once, I believe, too. Especially the beginning part of the book. I feel like I could have reread the first maybe 150 yeah. pages. There's just so much take, taking so much of the world and trying to get like a picture of where they're living or like the, what's going on. I feel like the story really didn't pick up until over 100 pages in. This is true. It's a bit of a slow start, but once the punches start fl- flying, it's nonstop action, which I thought the ante keep going up for Locke was a uh, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. What about notable plot points? Anything? jump out at you revenge definitely uh, i i love it and sorry you didn't normally our guests would get to listen to some of the episodes going into these guest episodes but again timing and schedules didn't work out but something we've mentioned twice now just jonathan and i and spencer lynch doesn't pull any punches he does things that and maybe a more mainstream novel or story wouldn't be done and I think it's true to his character. And the two examples I'll show you, maybe you can uh, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, is the revenge itself. Not only is it satisfying, but he goes all out to get the revenge, both on the Bonds Mage and the Grey King. And when he's with the Spider, the old Duchess, he has no problem mm-hmm. punching her in the face, grabbing the antidote, and running. And in maybe a more politically correct book or whatever like punching in punching an old woman just seems like so well so violent right but i think lynch did a good job writing a character like Locke who would do that he would go all out for revenge for his brothers and he would do anything including hitting a an older (laughs) duchess to get the antidote to scale down a building that seems very in character for Locke. i agree but i feel like just overall the the world they live in, things are just more, like, violent. Yeah. So I wouldn't think twice in his world of someone hitting a woman in the face. And I accept it. Like, it's fine. It's not our oh, world. Oh, right. That's the thing. Is it, you can't judge that world by, <laughs> by our, our standards. standards. Right. Not at, <laughs> not all. at all. So I think when, when authors try to preach and say, well, the high road is not to stoop to the level of the gray king or not to stoop to the level of barbarism and maim and you know, mute a bonds mage, not to just punch, you know, an old woman and grab the antidote. There's another way, there's a better way to do it. And sure, we're talking about the real world, but in this world, and I think you captured it beautifully, it's different set of rules. Yes. And I, I wouldn't want the high road. No. Like that wouldn't be sad. That wouldn't be a good thing. No, not at all. (laughs) Absolutely. It'd be boring. And to me, I don't want to be preached at. Like if the story takes Locke to where he does take a high road, and that's just a natural progression of the character, okay, that still might be, in you know maybe less enjoyable, whatever. But at least at the end of the day, it's Locke being true to character. Locke's style is to do something brash and insane. In this case, punching her and grabbing the antidote and scaling the side of the building or the mountain, wherever they are. Right. So, besides revenge. Is there anything anything else that stood out to you that Lynch did well that you don't find maybe in other books 
whether it's fantasy or fiction in general, anything that he did that made you go, huh, that is really cool. That's something new. Uh, I don't know. Anything with the world building. And maybe just to, to keep the drumbeat going of the episode, world building and the magic. Well, what do you think about the magic? I think this is how we're going to do this bonus episode, Jess, is I'm going to ask you some of the questions that Spence and Jonathan and I discussed, and then we'll t- get your take from it. So it'll be as if you were there, only we post your stuff a little later. So the magic system, what do you think about the magic system in the in this world? I feel like they could have explained it more. Okay. so Like how it works. Okay. So what, what we discussed, the magic system seemed, just like you said, it seems a little bit veiled, right? And I watched and listened to an interview with Lynch right before I started recording with the guys, and he did that on purpose. So tell me if this satisfies your curiosity or it, this is not doesn't work for Jess. Lynch said that he purposefully pulled back on the magic. So the author's journey in crafting the lies of Locke Lamora involved a deliberate departure from conventional fantasy tropes eliminating magical prowess and powers in favor of the protagonists, Locke and the gentleman bastards, having to grapple with a hostile and mysterious world. So it's the bonds mages that have ultimate magic powers. It's the alchemists that kind of have scientific-esque-ish powers. And then the people who are mentioned that play with black magic. Is that Does that make it better, or you still want to know more about it, where the bonds mages get their power? I kind of like when authors don't reveal everything because sometimes it ruins it when things Mm -hmm. are revealed too much. Um, And then, like, I don't read a lot of fantasy. It wasn't too magical, if that makes sense. Like, it wasn't, like, constantly magical. You know, it almost takes away because that, you know, serves to move the story. Like, everything's solved with magic. So not, I guess, everyone having magic would be, would make sense. I like the alchemist magic, I feel like. Like that explanation, those explanations were cool. Like the science where it seems like logical. Right. In their world, it's believable. Well, that, that brings up a good point we can remind the audience of is when shows like this do anything, they usually focus on two ways of looking at it without even knowing it. So it's the uh, Doyleist view and the Watsonian view. So the Doyleist view is the Do- Doyle who wrote um, oh, yeah. Sherlock Holmes. If you're analyzing the world as a doyalist, you're using our logic outside world and applying it to an in-world thing. Well, the Watsonian, when you look at it through Watson's eyes, he's analyzing Sherlock Holmes through his in-world eyes. So the what's believable in the world of Watson and Sherlock Holmes should be taken as that. But if you take the world that Lynch built, and I think it's a pretty good one, if you take the world that the Lynch built, all of that makes sense. It makes sense that there's these bond mages who were formed the way they did. It makes sense that people who use that magic outside of this, you know, cabal or cadre of bond mages are kind of dabbling in stuff they don't understand. And then standard world stuff is you have the alchemists. Mm-hmm. And they do what they do, which I thought, like you said, their alchemy, their science, quote unquote, was described fairly well. Do you have any thoughts on the themes that Jonathan and Spencer described? Specifically, how hubris gets Locke in trouble. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
think about who he is like as a person, he kind of has to be a certain way to survive. Because like, yeah, sometimes you have to fake, like not the fake it till you make it. You have to fake a, a confidence. Absolutely. Just to survive. You do have to have some sort of confidence to pull out the schemes that these gentlemen bastards do. Yeah. So were you at all surprised by some of the twists? Yeah, I definitely didn't predict well, like certain things well. Like, um, okay, I pronounce her name, Nazca. Yeah, her one. I thought that was going to be his love interest, and then it wasn't. Well, that right. was kind of clear, like right away. But when it first, when she's introduced, I'm like, oh, like they're little, like she doesn't like him at first. She thinks he's ugly. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's going to be in love with him later, and then not at all. They have a very platonic and diplomatic relationship, but her death was a surprise to me. I was very upset by that. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I was like, oh, she's not really dead. This is like a trick. I thought maybe she, because she had that plan to bring her father out. That oh, I thought okay. she, this was like an elaborate plan and that she was kind of like the count, you know, like the female, not the female Lachlamore, but Lachlamore, but like similar to him. Like she mm-hmm. was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Overly hubristic or, you know coming up with her own plans that she's no business making and going to get herself killed or that that was what happened that she got herself killed but i i really thought she was gonna come back to life okay like i know that sounds really dumb no no that's interesting but yeah if she was i mean there'd be one hell of a one hell of a step to take to get away from mary and Locke to get you know buried or lower yourself in some horse urine for it right or pretend to be dead but that doesn't seem out of the ordinary like that seems like if she didn't want this thing to happen and I think she wanted it. Well, let me put it this way. I think Locke wanted it less than she did. She told Locke Mm -hmm. just to humor her dad and we'll figure out how to get out of it. But it's not beyond the pale of, you know, reason that she would try to get out of it too, or come up with her own plan. But I, the, the setup in that particular event for the gray King I think it really shows early on the lengths he's willing to go to exact his revenge because he kills a random girl and to add insert to and to add insult to injury he dips her in yeah, horse urine. That was awful. That was dark. That was pretty awful. I was like I was really wrong. I also did not think anyone was going to die. I was like you're kidding me. That I thought that I mean oh, okay. I don't know why I thought that. That was dumb. No, no, because well, because well, because we're coming at it from a different uh, different perspective, so that, that's why these conversations are fun. Because I called the deaths of his friends. I thought, I didn't know who was going to die, but I felt like that I caught that foreshadowing with Locke getting his friends killed when he was a kid. But the one thing that surprised me, maybe more than it should have, was that that Duchess turned out to be the spider. No, that surprised me. Too. No, I was just surprised constantly. Yeah, and then the one that really threw me for a loop was when Locke dresses up as the Duke's secret police to trick Don Silvara mm-hmm. again. I thought the police were on Locke's tail. I thought that was the actual police, not Locke pretending to be the police. When that unfolded, when he comes to the guy he's uh, conning and says, you should give Locke, well, you know, the thorn all your money, and the Duke will repay you. I didn't see that coming. I thought that was the actual police. More than to get caught, there was another part that I thought he was going to get caught. Yep. Or all the little, like, the clever things he did, like, the whole time. Um, 
and how he deals with that poor waiter. I was laughing the whole way. Like he just ruins this guy's life. Like ah, that was awful. No, I was uh, throughout the book. I'm like, is he a good person or not? Yeah. I mean, not, but. Well, that's, that's the interesting part to this convo is does he have the hubris or is it just the confidence he needs to survive in the world? Or is it both? Is Locke actually just a decent guy in a very indecent world? Or is he just part of the problem of Kimura, right? Because that waiter, he just screwed that guy's life forever. Yeah, which no one seems to have any issues doing in this world. Like ruining no, people's lives. They really all. kill people really casually. Yeah. They threaten. Right. Well, even this uh, Grey King, he is so bitter that he's willing to kill people that have never even heard of him or the secret peace or anything related to the stuff that got his family killed, just out for blood from everybody. He wants a pound of flesh and doesn't care who he takes it from. Was he the one who said, I want to burn the whole city and write my family's names in the ashes? I like that quote. Yeah. I like that quote Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good quote. It's a good bad guy yeah, quote. Yeah, it good is. Good quote. But, like, it's understandable. Is he different than Locke? Because they both want revenge, and once you get revenge, yeah. Yeah, once you get revenge, well, what what's next? Then someone else wants revenge on you for getting revenge. Well, according to Jonathan, I haven't read this far, is the Bonds Mage comes back to bite Locke in book three. So Locke doesn't get away. Because Locke kind of thinks that he's getting away from dealing with the other Bonds Mages by not killing the Falconer, but just cutting his fingers and his tongue off. So, hey, I left him alive, but I don't know what happens, but it comes back to bite him in the ass in the end. But you're right. Coming back to, well, just a, a second ago, everybody's out for revenge. Revenge seems to be like the, the thing in the menu in Kimura. And if you step away for a second, we like Locke. Locke is the main character, so yeah, we're rooting for his revenge. And the Great King is the bad guy. But they're both avenging the deaths of their loved ones at the hands of, you know, corrupt, just corrupt yeah. individuals. So I guess, who do you like more? Locke Lamore is, you know, more, he, well, we know he's, we're told he's more likable. He's more likable to us. So he's like this. Yeah. But the Great King seems to be just as cunning and witty, and he seems to be able to break Locke like nobody else. Because Locke all his life, apart from that one mistake as a kid, has gotten away with a lot of shit. But with the Grey King, he is forced to pay. And he pays with the, the money that's stolen from him, which he stole from others. And he pays with the lives of his friends. So he's, he seems to have met his match, match yeah. with the Grey King. And is the Grey King just the flip side of Locke Lamora? Is the Grey King the dark side of Locke Lamora? Or... If Locke, unchecked in his hubris and everything that he does, if left unchecked, does Locke turn into somebody like the oh, Great King? Oh, yeah. What do you think of that? Definitely. Because, yes, Locke is the main character, and we were supposed to like him. And if we're to believe Jonathan, he does continue to grow as a character in books two and three. And he's forced to even deal more so with his choices and his actions he's brought very low in book two and three jonathan says that Locke 
is not able to get away with everything. He's now out of his comfort zone. He doesn't have all the support that he used to have. He has Jean, who, who is his counterpart and his equal and kind of his bodyguard to, to a large degree. But he doesn't have everything else. He doesn't have his ties in Kimura. He doesn't have his money. He doesn't have the twins. He doesn't have Bug to be a lookout. And he is forced to do a lot more harder things with less resources. And Jonathan says that he's brought lower and lower. When the, you know, the hubris goes unchecked, he be, would become the Grey King, but like his life didn't go that way. Right. So I, I'm excited. I mean, this is for after the new year that we're reading those things. I'm excited to see where a lot goes. I feel like you, it's going to involve the girl. Like he's going to, that's going to eventually happen. That's too much in the book. Yeah, and she's already fascinating. She, what is what is said of her? If she was more humble and less crazy, she'd be you know able to like be with the gentleman bastards. So if she's done something to where Father Chains says we can't have this around. Yeah, because everything that Slock has done is crazy enough, and he's pissed off Father Chains enough plenty. But whatever uh, this girl did, it's even just Lock stuff pales in comparison. So. It'll be interesting to see how that reunion unfolds. The little bit I prodded out of Jonathan, it doesn't go as one would think it would go. Whatever that means. So he's, Jonathan wants to keep me guessing, apparently. What else would you really like or hate about the book? I love the world. I loved uh, the kind of criminal the criminal Yeah, the, the gentleman bastards, the, like the whole, uh, the enterprise, the criminal enterprise. Not, yeah, not just them, but like the other, yeah, like the, their little world. The world they lived and like they, you know, other people like them. Okay. The other game, like the, I like, what is it, like a criminal, the criminal network type thing? I don't know. It's fun. It's definitely a book, you know, those other books we always want more. This one does, you don't really have that. Like he kind of had everything covered. He gave enough of those things. What about your favorite character and why? Gene, that's a hard one. Gene, Locke, or Father Chains? Father Chains, you know. Well, it was between Father Chains and Locke when the guys and I were talking. What about something that's weak in the story? I don't know if it's, I don't think it's a writing issue. For me, it's like keeping track of the names and the aliases. Oh, yeah. Like to remember, because the like a lot of the, I know overall the names sounded kind of Italian or there's not a lot of introspection, but like it's not that kind of book that has a lot of introspection. And I don't know. Yeah, maybe nice to know more about like his state of mind. Like Locke specific, just just Locke, not because that's one thing I wouldn't want everyone's state of mind. That might be, that'd be a totally different kind of book. Yeah. So for me, it was Locke too, but I wanted more, more of Locke's story as a young boy. Oh, yeah, but I feel like they're leading up to that. That's like Probably, because apparently there's backstories to Jean and Locke, more of them, more of the interludes in book two. So that gets fixed. But I felt, just like your introspection comment, I felt that, hey, if we got, I don't want to say 100 pages because that's a lot. If we got 15, I don't know, that's, I'm just going to cut it down to 15. If we got 15 pages to get a little bit more of Locke's story, I thought that would be better. Also, like, more religion, of their religion explained would have been cool. Because I don't really get it at all. Or their belief system. It's funny how, and I don't know, this is a bit of a side quest, 
when Lynch was creating this world, he pulled back on the magic for the reasons I already mentioned. But when he was creating this world, he wanted it to be, he wanted it to stand by itself. He didn't want to pull in too much analogies from the real world, but he wanted it to be believable. So the fact that it resembles 17th century, 15th to 16th to maybe 17th century England is what he planned at first. That's on purpose. He wants it to remind you of something that is that you you have some knowledge of and that it would make sense for him to do the things he does. Because he said, for example, if I put him in like, you know, 11th century Rome, it wouldn't make sense. Even if I crafted it the best way I could, it still wouldn't make sense. So he said, okay, so I'm thinking England. I'm thinking between the 15th and the 17th century, and I start writing these characters. And then as the world grew, and he didn't want it to be, like I said, a representation of a real-world geographical place. But as he kept writing, it started changing from England to what literally was Venice. He sounded like the overtones, and the world became sounding like... Yeah, I noticed that, And it's Italian names and all this stuff. As he's building this world, the in-world religion and the in-world politics it just just makes sense and that that makes it for an interesting read all right jess i think it's time to wind down our bonus portion of the episode we're going to end it with a scale so for story and plot what would you give this book five yep that's i was a four jonathan was a five characters what do you think some of them would get a five, um, but some okay. four. So like a four point five. I don't know. No, we do. do that, we do. Something like okay, a four point five. Like the main character, well, Locke, obvious a five for his yeah. character development. Beautiful. Uh, what about the world? Five, definitely a five Def- for that. Oh, I feel yeah. like that's We're- the strongest thing. Absolutely. And then the pacing. Oh, five. Absolutely. Yep. It felt like an action that towards the end, it was like, oh, that was a bloodbath. And like you said, they kept on upping, you know. Excellent. Okay, Jess, thanks for your time. It was fun again to have you on to discuss Lies of Locke Lamora. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Audience, make sure to hit that subscribe button and we will see you in the next one.